You know, I think in general, we're just bombarded, right, every day with so many overwhelming needs from the news, social media, Facebook. We're getting it from all sides. And, and I honestly don't think we, um, I don't think we're made, I don't think we're, we're physically or emotionally able to carry a compassionate response for all of these different needs that we see. Um, it'd just be, it'd be too much. But when we encounter an individual... Hi, and welcome to the Compassionate Achiever podcast. I'm Tracy Day, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Chris Cook. Hi, Chris. Hi, Tracy. How's it going? Awesome. Awesome. Just a little quick background on you, political and social science professor at Western Connecticut State University, founder of the Center for Compassion, Creativity, and Innovation. You're a Fulbright Scholar and ex-counterintelligence officer, and your latest project, of course, is writing the book Compassionate Achiever, How Helping Others Fuel Success. So here we are to talk about some compassionate achievers. Yes, and to me, what you have scheduled today is a model compassionate achiever organization. They are one of the best, seriously. I, I am so jacked up and psyched that you were able to coordinate this and get this squared away. So I'm probably going to be drooling the first time just <laughs> listening to Because seriously, they make a great, great difference in the world. And they help so many kids out all across the world. And they're right here based in Connecticut. And uh, I just, I write about them in the book. And you know, hopefully... You know, the, their words will come alive uh, through our, po- our podcast today. Absolutely. And of course, we're talking about the group Love 146. And it's kind of a crazy name, but certainly not a crazy organization. And we're going to talk to the CEO today, Steve Martin. We're going to get him on the line in just a bit um, and talk about their amazing story. But yes. they have just become a model organization for not only Connecticut, but across the globe. Yeah, you're right. uh, I mean, and in so many states, they are just really, you know, they're the poster child, no pun intended, for how to do this. And um, of course, their goal for those that do not know uh, is to end child trafficking and exploitation globally, which is a big bite to <laughs> to take off but you know what if anybody can do it they can yeah and I don't think they get enough recognition so hopefully that you know between the book and between podcasts and other things that they do that they get more recognition people know what they're doing people even volunteer to help them out in some way shape or form and, you know and get on that love 146 uh, bandwagon I, I, w- I would love that if, you know that came out of this show, for example. Absolutely. And we're going to actually talk to Steve about some opportunities that people may have to get involved if cool. they if they want to. or And certainly funds, you know, these kind of organizations. Right. I mean, that goes without saying. And this is not just a plea for, <laughs> plea for money. They, they've got a lot to share. But um, I'm sure they would appreciate any sharing of funds <laughs> that are out there. So anyway, to back up a bit, how was your vacation so far? It has been awesome. I've been doing a lot of running, so that's that. I get into a blissful state when I'm out. Uh, I'm out running. So how about you? Been great. Been great. So I have to ask you though, do you think there really is such a thing as runners high? Yes. Does that bring out oh, passion yeah. in you? Oh my gosh, yes. No matter what drivers try to hit me, I still love them. <laughs> still love them all. <laughs> I love you as you're like skimming past no. me. <laughs> well, it's so bad. So when I ran as a, a teenager, you know, there weren't these cell phones that people were looking at. 
So, you know, out of all the years I, I ran when I was younger, you know, maybe twice I almost got hit. Mm-hmm. It's like twice a week. Uh, now people looking, you can see them in their windshields looking down at their phones rather, but, and I wear the big glowing vest when Smart. I run. Um, but yeah, you get a runner's high. But you can't high. see glowing anything if you're not looking up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can't see the tree in front of you if you're not looking up. And, so. and for me, that runner's high comes at mile three. Mm. Every mile three, I, all of a sudden I feel like, yeah, this is copacetic. There you go. And I can't get too copacetic because I'm on the roads around here. But uh, it's, yeah, it's really, it's a lot of fun. And once your body's, you know, up to doing the distance and that takes a little time. Oh, my God. The runner's high is so real. And does it last after yeah. a while? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Ask my poor wife. She's got, <laughs> she's got to she's deal like, with me. Get because, away from me. Right? <laughs> Because we have three boys as it is. Now it's just like adding a fourth. Right? It's, yeah. it's like, no, please, no more running. Or go run some more. Run around the block again. Have you been listening to us? <laughs> no. no. Well, my, lately, um, my latest, I guess, run with compassion that I've been thinking about was um, we were in, on vacation in Nantucket. Yeah. And... I have to say, for a tiny little island out in the middle of the, out in the middle of the ocean, thirty miles off, people just become uh, just they have a different mental state, if you will. Good one, a really good, <laughs> good one. Good, good, and and I love it. It's just they get into this mode of just chill, and people actually drive really nicely. Talk about driving and not hitting you. Um, but they, you know, they slow down, they let you in, they open doors. They're like, oh, here, can I help you? You know, you stop to ask for directions, and they actually want to, you know, be of assistance and take the time to show you around. And it, it's really infectious. And I think I've noticed that, that compassion is one of those things that can be very infectious. If you're around people like that, then you want to be like that. So the whole island was uh, like full of compassionate achievers? They, uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, there's a lot of okay. them out there. No. I'm not one of them necessarily. Oh, yes, you no, are. No, right. but I mean, really. But I have some... to ask you now, since you asked me the question, mm-hmm. does the runner high last, how long or does it still last the compassionate Feeling coming home, coming home from the island. Right? Yeah, I would say it does. I I think so. You know, you come back from vacation and you know you feel like so good and you're so relaxed and whatever. Um, but then reality does you know come slamming back. And one of these things, and I do I have to preface this. I do love my family dearly, but I was there with them for about eight days. And you know what? I have a saying that fish and family after about four days starts to smell a little. And so <laughs> there, you know, was, I was trying not to let those tensions run high. So, um, but I, I think it does. I think it, it holds on for a while and you just get in that mode. And the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And it's great. It's cool. really, you know, it is infectious. So it's a good thing. It's All right. Thing. All right. Speaking of infectious, uh, let's get Steve Martin, CEO of Love 146 on the phone and uh, we will chat with him and he can tell us his amazing story. All right, let's rock. Hey, Tracy. Hey, Steve. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm great. And I'm on with Dr. Chris Cook. Chris is so excited to meet you. Have you guys ever met in person? No, I just wrote about his organization in my book. Um, But this is an honor for me, uh, Steve. Oh, 
Likewise, Dr. Cook. Uh, uh, Chris. Great to meet you as yeah. well. Chris, yeah, pleasure. Well, the pleasure's all mine, and I'm hoping that with our podcast today, we can get more word out about what you're doing. And, you know, I know, for example, there are a lot of organizations that I'm getting feedback about the book and feedback about your organization, because I, I write highly <laughs> and, and high regard for, for everything that you guys are doing. And, and so thank you on behalf of all the children everywhere for everything that you guys do. It's pretty amazing. Incredible. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Appreciate that. So, Steve, how was your trip back? Was it good? You just it returned was, from yeah, the UK, It was lovely. Right? They upgraded me, so that always helps. Oh. Get a little bit of sleep on the plane on the way home. Snap. Definitely. Right. And you had the kids yeah. with you, didn't you? No, no. This was a, literally a quick trip. I was there for just a day. Oh. So I had a, a quick meeting and then uh, turned around and came right on home. So, yeah. I... Uh, I I would have liked to have taken them this time, but it wasn't going to work out. No. Well, let's um, jump in. For those of those listeners who don't know what Love 146 is, I think it's best coming from you. Can you tell us um, about the organization and certainly how it got its name? To me, this brings a tear to my eye every time I hear the story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, our story began about 15 years ago when our co-founders, they went undercover uh, with investigators into a brothel and there behind a glass screen uh, they saw young girls uh, uh, wearing red dresses um, each being sold uh, for sex and, um, and these, these young girls they were all gathered around a, a TV uh, monitor or a, a television set watching children's cartoons uh, while the men behind the glass screens were purchasing them uh, by the numbers that were pinned on, uh, on their dress. And our co-founder, Rob Morris, he describes these girls as having a vacant expression in their eyes, like all signs of life were taken from them. Um, and that was all except for one girl, one girl who stared straight through the glass at Rob. And, uh, and he describes her as having a fight left in her eyes. There was, she was still defiant, uh, still had hope. And, um, and it was, it was her, her stare um, that uh, brought Love 146 into being, and her number was, uh, was 146. Um, and so Rob and, and the other co-founders, they left that experience um, from Asia looking at uh, how, how they could make a difference. And I met Rob about three years later um, when I was working with another organization, and he was telling me about the journey and told me the story and how they'd set up this charity. And they needed... Um, some help with some of their communications and I was just setting up a, a company at the time and said hey why don't I move up to Connecticut where you guys are based and I'll help you out and shortly after that I found myself in, in Southeast Asia with Rob uh, videoing the story of, uh, of one of the young girls that had come into our care and, and from there the rest was history. That, this is when I realized this wasn't just a, it wasn't just a side gig, it, this was going to be a, a, full-time, a full-time endeavor for, for quite some time to come and that's been about 12 years ago. Mm. And what you've done since it started is amazing. Tell us um, about some of the programs that you have going on right now. I know you're involved in a lot of different areas um, with child trafficking, but um, tell our listeners you know, what those are more specifically. Mm, we have two areas of focus um, in survivor care, taking care of children who have been exploited and trafficked, um, and then in prevention education, um, and awareness. So we, we started off in Asia where we, um, we now have two safe homes, a round home for girls, uh, where I think we have about 13 children in the home and we've cared for um, in total about 101 
um, and we also have a white home for boys um, in the Philippines. Um, in the UK, we serve children who have been trafficked into the UK from um, mainly from uh, I think Albania and Vietnam are the two top countries of children we serve. Um, and then here in the United States, um, in Connecticut, we have a survivor care program working alongside some of the child welfare agencies and DCF here in Connecticut, um, where we have been uh, serving about I think about 53 cases. Um, at the moment on our on our books in Connecticut. That's our survivor care. And prevention education, we have a curriculum called Not a Number um, that uh, we implement through um, other agencies and through trained caregivers and social workers um, in schools um, and in group homes. And um, we've reached about over 8,000 children so far um, through that curriculum over the last, the last few years. And then we have our, our mobilization programs um, where we are... Uh, mobilizing volunteers and, um, and other individuals to be able to go out and uh, spread the word, raise awareness, um, go into truck stops and, um, and motels and hotels and, and spread the word of, of how folks can identify uh, trafficking right here in the United States. Well, I think that's one of the most scary things is, and this is such a tough topic for people, but um, so many people think, oh, well, that's kind of over there. And that is not the case whatsoever. It's right here in our backyard. I mean, yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what is so great about what you're doing. And before you got on the line, we were singing your praises and <laughs> saying, you, you know, Love 146 is like the model organization for not only Connecticut, but so many states are, are really kind of trying to follow in your footsteps. Is that right? I mean, well, and that's the other thing I want to kind of ask you about while you're thinking about that, that question, uh, Steve, is, you know, when I was doing research on your organization, what stood out for me was that it started with just regular guys, musician dudes, <laughs> right, <laughs> who, who, who said, you know what, there's something wrong, <laughs> and we're going to do something about it. They weren't these, you know, this huge organization yet. This it wasn't this organization that had curriculum yet. They were like, you know what, we see, some, we see a problem, and we're going to do something about it. Is that, is that right on? Is that, is that pretty close to the, to the truth? Yeah, I think I think one of the things that we've realized, and uh, I know you speak a little bit in the book, Chris, around collaboration, is um, no one individual can do it all, or no one organization can do it all, and it requires um, it requires you to collaborate, and in our case, bring people who are, are experts around us, and we've done that really, um, really thoughtfully. Um, you know, when, when I think when in those early days. Um, and it's, you know, collaboration is, is one of our values uh, as an organization. We collaborate. And, it, and we think it, it, begins, it begins with the posture of not reinventing the wheel. And, and instead, we're coming and asking, how can, how can we be helpful? And we know that we um, are helpful and we can be more effective when we're collaborating with, with others. And you know, I think when, when you're working specifically with this, this population, you, you need other people. You can't do it all. We have to collaborate with medical personnel, government, social services, law enforcement, legal support. No one organization could afford to do all of that. Um, you know, and what we had in those early days was a platform. Um, you know, some of the, the co-founders uh, were musicians and speakers, and, and so they used their platform to raise awareness. Um, and then we were able to hire some extraordinary um, ch uh, child psychologists or social workers or other people who had incredible skills in the background, bring them on board and, 
um, and then start networking and, and collaborating with others. Um, and and I think I think as well when, when we're talking about um, where we learn and where we collaborate from, putting those that we serve at the centre of that conversation is really really important. Um, you know, collaborating with children. Um, and having them inform what we do and, and how we do it is is really important. Now we we started a feeding centre in the in the Philippines, in an area that we we knew were, was highly prone to trafficking, um, and it turned out there were lots of boys there um, who were telling us that that they were literally selling themselves to uh, foreign paedophiles so that they could afford to have a place to stay at night so that they could have somewhere to do their schoolwork yes. um, and their homework. And so through kind of learning through them and learning through their experiences, we, we decided to move the feeding centre into a, a residential centre so these boys could, um, uh, could have somewhere to stay on an evening. And that's since turned into our white home. And, and now these boys, um, some of them, we've got a couple of them in university uh, after wow. a few years. And mm. so... Does that that journey of you know we, we took what we we took who we were and the the platform we had and we surrounded ourselves with other experts and then we listened to the children as well um, and all of that together kind of weaves together um, a, a great opportunity for some some incredible results to happen. So Steve, I I've read that Rob Morris, um, your one of your founders, has said that the name Love One Forty Six is our daily reminder that this is not about an issue or a cause, that it's about individual people. And we fight differently for individuals than we do for an issue or a cause. So why do you think that, why do you think that is? You know, I think in general, we're just bombarded, right, every day with so many overwhelming needs from the news, social media, Facebook. We're getting it from all sides. And, and I honestly don't think we... Um, I don't think we're made, I don't think we're, we're physically or emotionally able to carry a compassionate response for all of these different needs that we see. Um, it'd just be, it'd be too much, but when we encounter an individual um, or a person, the, the cause starts to take a back seat, right? And you start to, we're given the opportunity to empathetically connect, um, connect with someone. And, I think sometimes it's, we just have to remember that every big social or justice issue, it impacts individuals. And um, you know, I think recently I had somebody who, um, someone close to me who passed away because of cancer. And that wasn't something that I'd particularly thought about too much. But suddenly cancer had a face. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you fight differently, right, for, for somebody that you're connected to um, or have compassion for um, over, over a group of anonymous people or, or a cause. So, Chris, you talk about, in the book, the Slavic brothers, is that right? Uh, Father and son. Oh, oh, okay, they're not brothers, okay. Um, And compassion fade. So is that kind of what we're talking about here, that people just, it's too much? Yeah, I think Steve Steve put his his finger on it, that there's so much coming at us, right? But, you know, even on the immigration issue, when you have one little face, Mm -hmm. right, a five-year-old boy, whose body comes up on the ocean, which we right. island, right? Um, he, he put a face on the immigration story, and people all around the world in Western countries started coming that to help. That one picture right. really turned the movement around. But the Slovaks, uh, Paul and Scott, uh, Slovaks, show us that when we see too many faces, when there are so many people, they, it becomes too amorphous for us in, in, in terms of intellectually. Mm-hmm. And so... 
our level of compassion starts to fade, starts to decrease uh, when we think it's too big of a problem. Mm -hmm. And they call it, you know, there's this uh, idea that as the problem gets bigger, our compassion gets weaker. Hmm. And they call it compassion fade, and they show it over and over again that, you know, if you can put one face to it, like Love 146, that one girl, right? Not a number, but... It, ironically, that was her name on her badge or, or whatever. And that. the Slovak's whole book is about this. Hmm. It's about this compassion fade. And I think it's, you know, the reason I write about it, I think it's something we have to address, especially when you're dealing with, with uh, issues that like Love 146 is dealing with, right? That it's so big at times that if you th- consider how big it is, you might never get started. Where Love 146, they're like, no, come on, let's put down our bass guitar and let's do something, mm-hmm. right? And that, that to me, I think, is an inspiration to all of us, right? The, these guys who put it together, man, they, they, they were regular guys. They're regular dudes. And they decided to do something. That means we all can decide to do something about it. And, and if we have what Steve is, is talking about right now, is this, this idea of thinking on the individual basis, you know, him losing someone close puts a face on cancer. There's a face on all of these problems, mm-hmm. right? And I think one of the things we could learn from the Slovak father and son team is that we've got to look at the faces. We've got to connect, as Steve just said, with each person. And as you know, I, I think every person should be considered sacred, that we're all, that each one of us has sacredness. Mm-hmm. And so we don't do any damage to anything we consider sacred, right? And so I think we should be treating each other that way. And if we did, we would have less compassion fade. And, you know, and we would have compassion invade, right? So what do you say, Steve, to the people that... Um, so this is a statistic that I read. It could be way wrong. Uh, you know, the internet is never wrong. <laughs> Probably got it off of Wikipedia or something. <laughs> um, I read that 1.5 million people are trapped in forced sexual exploitation globally. So how do you take that number? I mean, that is just just blows me away. How do you not give up? And what do you say to people that say, you know what, it's a losing battle. How are you ever going to completely eradicate sex trafficking? Mm. What do you say to those people? I think another one of our values as an organization is the fact that we hope and that we choose to hope as an act of defiance um, in the very face of the violent and and the horrific abuse. Um, So it's partly a choice, right? Um, but in, in you know, where, where do you get your inspiration? Where, where, where do individuals find that hope? For, for us, many of the cases are the children themselves, and it's their stories of hope. And um, I've had the privilege of being able to meet some of those that we serve and um, some of those who have been so very exploited. And, and you see their hope when they start to tell you their dreams of what they want to be and um, uh, some of the ideas that they have for the future. And so... So the children themselves can offer hope. Um, and and mm-hmm. we've also been really intentional as an organization to tell the stories of hope, thinking that inspiring people into action um, is, a better, is a better motivation rather than requiring anybody to, uh, to move into action. So much more of a motivating force. But, you know, there's always been, there's always been naysayers, right, around the, the bigger <laughs> there challenges. There always are, society, unfortunately. Right? Yeah. And, and people said, you know, it's a losing battle when it came to apartheid or the transatlantic slave mm-hmm. trade. And there'll always be these, these naysayers in our world. But if it was my son or my daughter who mm-hmm. was being exploited, anything less than completely eradicating trafficking would be unacceptable. 
Um, and I, you know, I know I'm not out to lunch. I know that you know one person exploiting another is going to be a, a human issue as long as there are humans around. Mm-hmm. But I know that in this day and age, we've got the technology, we've got the understandings, we've got the connections, we've got the opportunities and the platforms to ensure that um, you know we can uh, get the systems of justice to work, or law enforcement that's needed in place, or profits uh, that are made from slavery. Um, uh, stopped and, and supply chains, slavery supply chains, um, taking those, uh, have getting slave-free supply chains, I should say, uh, out of the products uh, that we buy, that we can put all this stuff into place. But you know, I think honestly, like our, our team on a, on a day-to-day basis, we're waking up and we don't have all the answers. We're focused on just taking the next step and then the next step mm-hmm. and the next step. And I think, you know, there is, there have been plenty of those naysayers that over the years have told us that the results that we're seeing today um, would never have happened, that we wouldn't have been able to care for the 300-plus trafficking survivors or seeing the 20,000 youth reached um, with prevention and awareness. And um, I remember uh, uh, a chap called Dr. Um, Andrew Young. He was a former mayor of Atlanta. He was a friend of MLK and the UN ambassador. And he once told us that he and Dr. King had a saying, and... They used to tell each other, you know, the difficult will do immediately. The impossible just takes time. <laughs> mm, I love that. Um, that's a good one. And, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, that, that's, it's, it's that attitude and that approach that, uh, that fuels us and keeps us going. Well, I also think that um, one thing that somebody told me once was, you know, if you try and look at child trafficking as a whole, yes, okay, maybe you can't eradicate that. But if you can save one child at a time, just as you said, Steve, if that were your child, wouldn't you want, I mean, of course, we would all lay down our life to do that. And so that's how it goes right back to that, you know, compassion fade. You, you mm-hmm. respond differently to a person. So we can't look at it as just this big, giant ball of, mm-hmm. you know, mess, but break it down and if you can help one person at a time. Well, and I think, you know, both Love 146, uh, MLK, you know, the groups and people we're talking about, to me, they are what I call realistic optimists as Mm. opposed to idealistic optimists. Real, Mm. right? Realistic optimists look at what needs to be done and they follow through. They have hope and hope, hope is, means that you also have strategy and agency in, in, in yourself. Where optimism, you know, per se, and the idealistic optimism, you know, there's a little bit of serendipity, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. That maybe it'll work out. Where hope, you know, you're going to find it. And that realistic optimist finds paths. He knows there's going to be obstacles, but you either go over, around, or under the obstacle, right? You can find an excuse not to go through an obstacle, but you can also find an excuse to get through it, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, Love 146 has it right in their name. Right, that young lady, that young mm-hmm. lady's face, you know, is is their realistic optimist. Right, that you know that to me makes a difference in terms of who's going to be change maker. And I and you know listening to you and that that quote, Steve, that that's really that brought that to mind. It's the difference between a realistic mm-hmm. optimist and an idealistic optimist. An idealistic optimist is basically a Pollyanna. Oh, everything's going to be great. Right, yeah. compared to a realistic optimist, like let's get down and dirty, let's do this and chip away. Right, which is exactly what you guys did. And and you you started off as as Chris said, 
you know, you didn't know what you were really getting into, did you? I mean, <laughs> like, <laughs> we did not. <laughs> sometimes you just got to jump in the pool and, yeah. and look what you've done, the impact that you've made. So we want to give listeners tools to actually become compassionate achievers themselves. Mm. And I know that you probably have a laundry list of tools that you've used, but can you name one or two for me that you think, you know, just the regular Joe Blow can find in themselves to actually go out and do something? And, and this has nothing to do with Love 146, but whatever their passion is, you know, that they can use that mm. to go mm. forward. Can you think of something that has helped you along the way? Yeah, you're identifying something there, Tracy, that each of us have something unique to contribute. And, and maybe the, the one tool that we all have um, equal amounts of is time. Um, and taking that time to learn is incredibly, incredibly important. So, um, you know, I think, I think when, um, you know, when you're trying to determine, like, what is, what is the area that I should be um, connecting into meeting with others who have already already working out a, a lifestyle of compassion action or or reading um, uh, upon the topic or watching documentaries films being inspired attending events um, supporting those who are in it daily I think there's there's a great need for people who are who are working day in day out social workers that are working day in day out in some of the most challenging situations coming alongside them um, and learning from them. On our website, we put a whole, um, a whole section, our, our learn section, specifically so that folks could, could, um, could connect, could learn, and then could figure out where, where, should they, where should they be connecting into this issue or other issues as well that are, that are all related to it. So I, I, you know, I'm not sure there's any one specific tool, but taking the time to learn um, and thoughtfully connect in uh, is probably one of the most valuable things that people can do. Can I ask you a question on, on the tool thing? Thank you for that, because mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And when I was doing initial research, I I came. I was so angry <laughs> that people, adults supposedly, would use children, right, mm-hmm. in, in that way, and, and and do it so often that it's such a, a major problem, Steve. And so my question for you is, you know, anger must arise <laughs> somewhere along the line. How do you balance or check that anger, you know, with compassion? How do, how do you how do you keep you know you know not throwing a seat through the, the glass when you, you know, there's a you know a, you know another brothel you know escaped you know from uh, police um, surveillance and now you found it and you know how do you keep that anger in check so that you can still move forward in a constructive way because we know that anger right destroys things it doesn't really help mm-hmm. things. So is any advice on how to, how to keep that going and keep your organization moving so it's not moving mm. through anger but moving through compassion? Well, maybe I'll be, I'll be personal, maybe a little vulnerable here. I think anger is a, it's a very natural and justifiable response to um, a lot of what um, may come across my desk on a on a regular basis. And so to that end, if I'm, if I'm honest, I've actually stopped reading a lot of... Um, or what comes across my desk, because I know, I know where it gets unhealthy, um, mm. and I think some of that anger can be used for a positive force, right? Of, um, you know, when you take the time and you process and process with people who are close to you and, and are, are wise and thoughtful 
friends around you. So if, if you can channel that into positive action moving forward, then you're on to a good thing. Um, but I, I know for me, a lot of what comes on my desk, it, it honestly can just get too much. Um, and so I'm very careful about what I, what I take in, what I'm reading on a, on a daily basis, knowing that we have some incredible people on our team, some of the social workers or some of those that are working front lines with children who have a gift um, to be able to take even more upon themselves um, than, than I can. Um, and so I certainly think knowing your boundaries and knowing where it is that it's not healthy for you is is extraordinarily uh, important. And I think that, that differs for every individual. I wouldn't want to create a, a one-size-fits-all for, for everybody. Um, I remember asking our, our director of care in the Philippines, you know, how, how do you stop from just exploding? And yeah. she, mm-hmm. she comes with such, inc- has such incredibly hard stories on a day in day out basis. And, um, I, and I was concerned about her saying like, Actually, I think you need to take some time off. And, and she said, Steve, do you see where we've put the round home? It's in the middle of the mountains and it's in this glorious space. And so sometimes I just open my door and I sit and I look mm. and I just enjoy what I've been given. Uh, in terms of the space and the environment. And so I think knowing what fuels you um, and where your limits are is, is so very important um, to, be, uh, to be a part of this in the long haul um, and to be able to last the long haul. Thanks for your honest answer. Yeah, absolutely. And Chris, I have a question for you, and maybe Steve kind of just answered that on his own, but um, do people get to a point where that compassion is on overload and they just you just can't go there anymore you just kind of check out do you then tend to turn that into something else well and that's a great question i think that's where self-compassion comes Mm. in right and this is where you know when i was listening to steve and in in him sharing the tool of knowing your boundaries knowing Mm. your limits right we all have our limits we all have our boundaries and as steve said we're all different on that and that's where self-compassion comes in right because compassion is about understanding and if you don't understand yourself, how can you even help others? Because to help others, you have to understand their issues. Right? Mm-hmm. But if you can't even understand your own issues, how are you going to step out into the world and help others? And so it could, it could, it, you can cross wires there and you know, lead to really some downfall in, in, in a bunch of different ways, personally, professionally, you name it. So yeah, it can happen, but that's where you know, taking time. You know, I make sure... You know, for example, people say, how do I do it? I'm so busy. Life is so crazy. We all have 10 minutes where you can take just a 10-minute meditation. And like what he said about one of his coworkers, she opens the door and sees the mountains. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's a meditative moment right, right there, right? That's a time where you're taking stock of yourself. And that's, that's one of the things with compassion, I think, is really helpful. Because it's like love. Love, when it's done right, never burns out. You just it just keeps going more. and compassion mm-hmm. is the same way but remember that compassion involves self-compassion mm-hmm. well and we've talked about this on the show before that helping others can help you too though so yes. it's it's kind of a, a balance i guess you can't you know you have to help yourself put your own mask on first before yeah. you can <laughs> help your <laughs> the person next to you in the plane right but yeah. but doing that can also help you Yes, in, and in it helps, helps avoid compassion fade, basically. Mm-hmm. Okay, makes sense. Well, I want to get to um, one other question, Steve, that we like to ask our, um, our guests. Um, do you think compassion is a value, a virtue, or a verb? 
and and why? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like the kind of thing I'd be asked in like an English class. Right, I know, I know, I know. This it's is like the only essay. tricky one, but I gave you a heads up before. <laughs> you know what? Um, I honestly think to truly understand the definition of compassion, you actually have to act it out. Um, you've got mm. to you've got to be able to to do it because you know values, virtues without actions, they're just their theory, um, and theory is not very helpful to to someone who actually needs compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does require that personal connection, that one on in one-on-one interaction, and, and, and I suppose in, in some cases it requires a level of, of sacrificial giving. Um, but as you were just sharing that earlier, it, it has a way of benefiting you. Um, and a, a friend of mine, Justin Dillon, just wrote a book called A Selfish Plan to Change the World. And, and mm. it, it, that the premise is, is similar of um, really when, when, when you go to help others, it benefits you. Um, and there's a part of us that we're, we were created for, uh, for helping others. Um, and when we do that, it, 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 uh, it has a way of bringing us into a greater degree of health um, ourselves. So, yeah, I think I, think, uh, I, would, I would go for uh, a verb. Verb. <laughs> we'll take you, you the do door it. number three. You've got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go for verb. Now, I'm going to switch gears here for just a second because I know that not only are you CEO of Love 146, but in the past you've, you've had a, a very different career in television and in acting. So what do you say... When, um, and I've, you know, dabbled, just put my toe in those things just a little bit, but those are really cutthroat industries and everybody mm-hmm. is vying for that one part, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you, you know, that's one place where you're probably not going to help the next guy, but you sort of want to, but how do you handle that in, in trying to get your own part? Like, how do you combine compassion in there or don't you? <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> um, Are we losing okay. you? Or yeah, is I know the line that was a little. Yeah, that was a little. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you, you know, He's quick. I, he got it. I lo- I loved my time working in uh, in television and, and and video, and you know I think again, kind of look at the whole like industries are made up of people, and and I honestly found like at the individual level many of those working in, in television were very compassionate. Now, I was in news for a while, and certainly there was a, you know, there was a drive to, 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 be the, you know, to be the news story the first or to be the best. And, um, but at a, an individual level, I, I, I always found compassion to be there. And, and maybe it was because I was around many creatives or, or passionate story, storytellers. And you know, since working with Love 146, we've had... TV production companies create videos for us at cost or for free. Television presenters host events for us. Um, at one point, we had some of um, London's top West End talent do this extraordinary flash mob for us in Trafalgar Square in London. And oh, wow. So I look at these individuals and say, they, they were all driven by a compassion, um, mm-hmm. and many of them after hearing about the story of Love 146. So I think on an individual level, it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then we even maybe we see it when... Um, when there is a big natural disaster or something like the Manchester bombings in the UK um, and you see those people in, in, in television and some of those more cutthroat industries come out and, and offer their services to help. And, um, yeah, compassion has a way of affecting the individual. True. 
So before we go, though, I do want to give our listeners who are interested in getting involved with Love 146, do you have any opportunities for them or where would they go to find out uh, how to do that? The very best place is our website where you can learn about who we are, our work, how to get involved, volunteer teams, employment opportunities, if you're a social worker or a teacher, how you can help get our curriculum uh, into your school or to be trained to implement our curriculum. So that's www.love146.org. Um, and uh, there's plenty of um, plenty of information there that should keep folks uh, occupied for quite a while. Yeah, it's a great website. Boy, it's break awesome. out the tissues when you go there. Just to <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's terrific, and we're so thankful for you being here, Steve, um, and so thankful for the work that you're doing at as CEO of Love 146, and to all of your staff. Uh, they're just incredible, and I, I thank you for taking the time today. Seriously. Oh, you're more than welcome, Tracy, Chris. Thank you. It's been a, a real pleasure. Thanks for, for letting me share a little. Well, thank you for you know being with us and also providing some of those ideas, some of the tools, and definitely the inspiration um, of you know getting out there and making a difference and hope for all of our listeners that today with Love 146 you've learned to unleash the compassionate achiever within you so that you can unlock success. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.